Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's the Rugby World Cup pod into its fifth, sixth week. Who knows? Um, we're all uh, a bit weary at this point in time. It's Sam Bruce, joined as ever by Christy Doran and thrilled to welcome back the big man himself, England's own Thomas Hamilton, ensconced in Marseille, uh, staring down a busy week of here, there and everywhere, planes, trains and automobiles. Thomas, uh, you've got your team, your nation through to the quarterfinals. Well done. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to a big weekend of, of knockout action. Absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, if you look at that Samoa game, I mean, it's remarkable that England are called finalists, isn't it, really? But, I mean, here they are. They're unbeaten, which, again, is just a bit bizarre. But, look, they've got a hell of a chance now of making the semi-finals, uh, which, which is just a bit bit mad, but it's the nature of the beast. And here they are. Coming home, Sammy. It's coming home. <laughs> well, they're in a far better spot than Australia, Christy. Um, and that's where we're going to kick it off, as we always do. Uh, look, uh, Sunday night, I-, I thought it was a... A superb game to round out the pool stage. It's probably a game, I think, on top of the Argentina-Japan uh, contest earlier in the day, which you were at in Nanterre. Um, two games at the pool stage, I think, probably badly needed uh, just to round out uh, that section of the tournament. Um, if we start uh, in Toulouse, where we got a pulsating 80-odd minutes between uh, Portugal and Fiji, and you can just imagine the roller coaster ride of those Wallabies in there saying, Galmia base where there's not a lot to do. Um, I'm sure they're all gathered together in a room watching it. Um, at times they look like they might still be alive. And then Fiji got their noses back in front. Uh, the lead was never more than seven points for Portugal, which of course Australia needed um, them to win by eight to be uh, hanging around for another week. Um, the game was great. Um, we'll come to Portugal maybe uh, in a short moment or two. But if we start with Australia, look, I mean, that result, had they... Uh, had the Oslobos got up, um, it really would have only papered over the cracks of what is a fairly disastrous World Cup campaign for the Wallabies. You're not wrong, Sam. And I wonder if anyone was allowed to say, are we a chance? Are we a chance? Because every time you thought about it, uh, Fiji obviously responded, they hit back, and it would have been a real roller coaster of emotions. It's a disastrous result for Australian rugby, but maybe it is the result that was needed. You know, in the same way that Paul Keating was saying, it's the recession that, that, that Australia needed. Perhaps indeed this is the rock bottom that Australia needs. And and there was a good reset for England following the 2015 campaign. Uh, there's going to be much more that's needed for Australia to get back to the top because uh, there, there's fundamental issues right across the game and and pathways grassroots the lack of base coming through um the lack of finances coming through through a very very small broadcast money just means that there's just not going to be enough finance coming through the door and a result like this really just it does hammer home the disappointment that everyone is feeling regarding the state of the game yeah in the latest talk or certainly yesterday in the australian financial review i noticed that um could be a live golf moment for Australian rugby next up, potentially chasing a bit of Saudi cash. Um, it's all going to play out in the next few weeks and months. Um, Tom, I guess come to you, mate. What's it been like, um, both looking at it from an English perspective with Eddie Jones, obviously coaching um, England for the past, um, what was it, seven years, six, seven years in the end, um, following uh, that 2015 World Cup, as Christy mentioned. I mean, such great success and then tailing off towards the end. Um, I, I think a lot of people in the English game were ready for Eddie to go, weren't they? Certainly probably in that that last year, 
and probably wanted him to go earlier than when the RFU actually made the decision. Um, looking at it from an English lens uh, at Australian rugby, well, what's been the standout, I guess, features for you? So just one thing Christy said there about the 2015 reset. I think now seven years on, and I know hindsight's beautiful, one of the main things they did there, perhaps wrongly, in that reset was they lost so much of their IP with Andy Farrell at Ireland, Graham Roundtree at Munster, Mike Catt with Ireland, Stuart Lancaster, with who was with Leinster, who's now with Racing. Like that's the generation of coaches uh, who are now elsewhere, and they, they, I think that's one thing to be mindful of in the midst of all of this and, and the inevitable shakedown is to ensure that the brightest brains do stay within the system and do feel valued because you just don't want to lose potentially someone who could be there in eight years' time. So I know that's now hindsight, etc. At the time, it was brutal, and they all. It's a great point. It's a great point. They all um, have grown as a result, and. The RFU England have lost them. Um, now, I think from a from a distance, uh, it's it is very hard to judge whether this is like chicken and egg. I think from uh, looking at the Wallabies and whether this rot was there, and I think there's probably no doubt that they'd probably done better under Dave Rennie. There'd have been a lot more continuity. Squad would have been different, but equally, uh, it could be one of those things where I think we only probably judge this in four years' time, don't you? Really, when you look back and say, hey. That was a that was like the nadir, but from there they've improved. They've got twenty caps worth of players, whoever the coach is. Then, um, sorry, twenty caps per player, that sort of thing. But it, at the moment, I, I I was so disappointed when we saw that game against Wales, where all for all the talk we were expecting the Wallabies to come in and start firing, and they didn't. They had it. There was that moment, you know, the line out where they lost it, and then Wales instead of going one point, uh, instead of one point game, it was a seven point game. And from there, it was just closed out and. Young guys will learn from it, like echoes of that tour of hell of 98, five years later, England win a World Cup. But equally, I don't think there's any schadenfreude because the game needs Australia. Like, it has to have Australia. In the next four years, the Lions in 25, the World Cup in 27, it needs, in a small game, in a game which is shrinking, where viewership and you have to think that sort of, and, and what's going to happen in the future with tier two countries and this bizarre Nations Championship and Nations League. Like it needs Australia to be strong. It has to have it. Has to have that part of the world playing really well to ensure that there's this global competitiveness and interest. So, an extremely long-winded way of saying that it's it's no fun watching the Wallabies collapse. Basically, uh, I mean it's quite funny, but it, it also it is, but it isn't like being serious from people who care about the game. It's it's not good. So I think they have to sort themselves out. It'd be fascinating to see what happens in the next couple of months with Eddie. I mean, goodness knows what's going to happen there. Uh, whether he says sayonara or sticks around, we'll find out. Yeah, for sure, mate. But just before we pivot maybe to that uh, T2 Portugal um, Nations Championship stuff, uh, excellent points there and around the departures, I, I guess, in the coaching team that have already happened that are happening. And just uh, that's going to be a big uh, focal point for Eddie if he hangs around Christy first up next year, isn't it? Because... Half of these guys are going, um, as it is. We know Dan McKellar's already signed up and gone to Leicester, soon to be joined by Dan Palmer. He's almost going to be starting again with this coaching group. I mean, from a journalism perspective, you and I never hear from Neil Craig or Brett Hodgson, um, which would have been you know, helpful after they shipped 40 points to Wales. Um, certainly Hodgson being the defensive coach. So... Um, if Eddie does in fact stay around and, and we're no clear as to that, whether that's going to happen at this point in time, he says he's going to wait for the review, 
But um, that's that's a big issue starting right there. Just also on what Tom said around the, the 20 caps and these guys that have played, it looks like there is the nucleus of a good squad there for that first assignment against Wales next year, isn't it? Because you bring Alan Alatoa back in, uh, Tenyo Tupu clearly, Lenny Katao, some of these guys that uh, weren't in that older generation but were still overlooked for for injury reasons. Um, you add it with you know your Angus Bells, your Tom Hooper, your Rob Valentinis, your Tate McDermott's. Let's say Carter Gordon will be better for the experience. Hopefully this um, doesn't see him go backwards in, in Super Rugby next year. Uh, Mark Norganitawasi, we think Marika's retired, um, as revealed by Pone Masili, potentially. And, of course, Andrew Kellaway at the back. Um, add in Ben Donaldson, you know, how he turns around at, at the Western Force next year. So um, just on those two points, mate, there, there's, you know, there, there's some good things to look forward to and, and also some alarming things as well. Yeah, a little bit to digest there, and the, and the names that you you, you rattled off. It, it, they're valid points. It's something that Eddie actually spoke about when a few of us were still left in Sanhedrin and spoke to him on the Friday. But on the on the coaching team, yeah, there's only a couple of that. Uh, Neil Hatley, uh, Brett Hodgson, they're probably the only two. And David Ross, the learning coordinator, whatever that really means. Um, but he's he's been a somewhat of a kicking coach too, working with the likes of Gordon and Donaldson particularly. Whether or not they stay or go, we'll see. Oh, I think there'll be a, a significant changeover. I, um, someone like a, uh, a Neil Hatley's pretty respected as an assistant coach. He's not necessarily thought of that highly as a head coach, but but he's not a head coach in this sort of matter. So I can see him perhaps sticking around if Eddie does. Um, there, there's going to be a, a need and a huge shift of bringing some more rugby intellect into the equation because we saw the lack of detail that was so exposed. Uh, the fact that, and, and I know we've spoken about this in the last few pods, but the fact that Portugal showed infinitely more attack and ability and prowess and creativity from first phase of both scrum and line out was a, a damning glide on the, on, on the game under Eddie and Yes, they tried to play this off the cup kind of style of rugby, but it, it didn't it didn't work at all. And Eddie would acknowledge that. And sometimes sometimes you try things and they don't work. But it's now about definitely shifting, pivoting. As for the, the generation coming through, absolutely there is some quality there. Uh, that is probably the only green shoot coming out of this campaign. It's the fact that the Angus Bells just turned twenty three last week. Um the, the Mark Nwang and Anuasi similar age profile. You know, Max Jorgensen goes on this tour, doesn't get cats, but he's only uh, about to turn 19. There's some serious quality. The Marika Corabetti, it was interesting. His wife put it on social media, wasn't quite so sure. I even asked Chris Webb, the the media, sorry, the Wallabies manager, asking for next year's schedule. So whether or not he's actually retired or not, we'll, we'll see in the coming months. But that yeah, I, I thought Tom's point there about losing the coaches was so valid, and and it's valid also because they walked into an Irish model, an Irish system, which was humming, that was centralised, that had the foundations already in place. Uh, guys of, uh, and former players from the '99 World Cup team have come in and they've asked, actually, how good was Rod McQueen a coaching? How much did he actually do? Well, a lot of and they go, well, he didn't actually do that much, but he had a very good foundation of not only players but coaches around him that allowed him to kind of be this overseer of the program which worked perfectly so 
if an Andy Farrell and a Mike Catwork came into an Australian model, how would they go? Because we know all the, the quality coaches that have come through the Australian system in recent years that simply haven't got the results that they have previously. So whether or not it's an Eddie Jones issue here or a wider systemic issue, I think it's the latter. That's why I wouldn't be turning away from Eddie in the blink of an eye. Yeah, I think there might have been a bit of uh, Queensland origin uh, about that Rob McQueen team back. Uh, anyone who had Billy Slater, Jonathan Thurston, Greg Inglis, Cameron Smith, Cooper Cronk on their team, I reckon the three of us could coach them and all we'd have to do is tell them what time kickoff was. Uh, and you, you'd be you'd be good to go. Um, the one final point on the, on the Wallabies I'll, I'll make, gents, I think we can't have this captaincy merry-go-round again next year. Uh, I, I Whether it's a Tate McDermott, an Alan Alatoa, um, I don't think Dave Parecki's captaincy material, honestly, I, I found that troubling, the fact that he didn't go back to Tate McDermott or James Slipper for those final two games. But just settle on that next year and adjust it accordingly when injuries pop up. I, I thought that was really distracting uh, this year for the team. Um, Tom, Bruce, Bruce, before you... The cap, the captaincy uh, merry-go-round was just so in line with everything that Eddie Joe's attempted to do this year. Every rule, and and we made this point six weeks, eight weeks ago. Every rule around the rugby playbook about what you needed in terms of uh, experience at ten, experience right throughout, uh, a well-established coaching team, a uh, method of plan that's been built for a couple of years. He tossed everything out the window hoping to flip the script and that included the captaincy thing so I, I can't imagine him doing that next year if he was to stay on but you add in all of it and it just is like well hang on uh it's just another and you know, i um it, it's just another damning thing about this campaign which went off track and so yeah, as I say, I can't imagine that they'll continue with that next year. But I completely agree. But it, it, it's it's another thing that gives more ammunition for those that are that are trying to you know say uh, Sarinara to, to Eddie Jones for sure. Tom, you, you mentioned Samoa, uh, and we just discussed Portugal a, a little bit there. If, if we pivot away and look at Tier Two and Nations for a moment, um, clearly there, there were some at this tournament who who really performed above expectation and. Others who it kind of feels like are going the way, probably Namibia and, and Romania specifically, and I don't know whether we'll see Romania um, at the next World Cup. Maybe if that is, if we do go to 24 nations, who knows? Um, but certainly Portugal, Georgia, Samoa, I think Tonga got better with every game they played too during the tournament. We need to get these nations more games, but the, the Nations Championship, the World League, whatever it's going to be called uh, in 2026, would seem to fly in the face of that. And looks to be planning to lock out any promotion relegation until 2030, I think is. So if we look now, that's what, seven, six and a half years from now, six years and a couple of months before, you know, these, these teams might um, have had more rugby. Uh, we've got another World Cup clearly before then. There's talk around or, you know, a plate competition potentially, but it doesn't seem that World Rugby is all that keen on that at the 2027 World Cup if they go to a, a 2014 model. Um but just the, the as Christy mentioned earlier, the the passion, the flair, the the continuity that Portugal played with in particular, not only against Australia and Fiji the other night, but against Georgia and even Wales in that first game as well. Like this is a team that I think half those guys are, are basically amateurs, and you know at times they made Australia look second rate last weekend, and I reckon they bombed two tries 
probably against Australia, maybe more. Um, Andrew Kellaway saved one in that corner, clearly, and and probably a couple more against Fiji the other night as well. Like the, these teams need more rugby, and yet the game is is going to shut them out. Now, clearly, there's a a financial issue that you know comes along with this as well. But say if Portugal are going to come down to Australia, they're probably not going to draw a big crowd, and that's not what rugby Australia needs right now. Um, is bumps on seats and, and revenue that comes from that. So it's a really difficult scenario to try and get your head around and exactly map out a, a model that will work for both getting the Tier 2 unions the games and I guess the Tier 1's not giving up the, the cash that they need to, to remain sustainable. That's it. And I think that rugby is completely run by self-interest when it comes to this sort of thing because COVID has just kicked the arse out of absolutely everyone in terms of finances, in terms of planning in terms of you know how they saw the game so that sort of two-year gap means that everyone is now playing catch-up the introduction or the uh increased amount of private investment and people buying off chunks of chunks of federations chunks of corporations etc means that they're all playing catch-up the whole time and to be able to get to a stage whereby you can actually see a, a fairly clean landscape it means it needs a complete reset and now it's like turkey's voting for christmas it's just not going to happen because everyone is like this whole thing of, you know, England only play at Twickenham. They have the ground, they own the ground, they have to fill it. Like, or else it's just this redundant slab costing millions of years, uh, millions of quid a year. So this is what's going on. And I think, I think what's also fascinating, just, just on the Portugal thing, is that in Portugal and Fiji, we've seen teams, I don't know if there's anything in this, but I've just thought of this, and this could be a good feature, Brucey. Basically, they're two teams built on sevens with a pathway of sevens, playing like sevens teams against 50, teams with 15s who haven't, there's no transition between the 7s and the 15s teams. So once they play against a team playing like 7s, they're screwed. They can't do it. They can't get near it. Like the expansiveness, the way that they move the ball, the speed, the skills. And so I think what that Fiji-Portugal game saw is basically 7s played out, but on a 15s field. It was so quick. It was so like brilliantly skillful. It was ambitious. It was like watching a 7s game, a high-quality 7s game. And I think this is what's going on there. And I think it's a really interesting point in this sort of in these days of 7-1 splits, that what actually excites people is teams like this. And I think that's what has to stay at the forefront of the mind of world rugby heading forward. I think the best game we've seen at this World Cup was probably Ireland-South Africa. The best performance we've seen at this World Cup, probably Ireland against Scotland. Maybe France against New Zealand in that opener. Um, but the most exciting game is the one where people will remember those who actually love the game is probably likes of Portugal, likes of Fiji, Samoa pushing England so close. We saw, um, you know, Uruguay with that win. Like, things like this, that's exactly what people want to see. And I think when it comes to cash, everyone's playing catch-up now. But what's, like, the true essence, why do we love the game? It's stuff like a Portugal game. Absolutely loved it. The hooker. I That's my favourite moment of the World Cup. That boy chugging back from the from the 50-yard line to put in a beautiful, like, touch. It was field. glorious. In his final ever game of international rugby. I mean, he tried to dummy half the field and just ends up bulldozing someone instead. I just, it's what everyone can relate to. I absolutely love it. And that's what's what makes me smile. And it's the same with these like wondrous tries where they give it a go. And it's not, it's not Owen Farrell kicking for the corner. And it's not Owen Farrell taking three. And it's not, you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I could be here for a while on this, but it's, that's what we love. And I think that's what we're going to lose without this promotion relegation to sort of tie myself in knots a little bit but yeah a few thoughts there which i kind of thrown against the wall. something will stick it was a piece of innovation though wasn't it it was it was it almost yeah it's so different to what 
the program nature of rugby has become and that's probably part as to why it was so exciting to watch but secondly maybe it caught a few by surprise because you haven't dealt with it for so long uh and you do wonder how much analysis was given how much respect was given to the portuguese too because whilst people knew and australia for instance the wallabies hierarchy had watched portugal play australia a I can't imagine that they would have spent the same amount of time analysing what they do, how they counter, uh, and particularly the, the mind frame of the Wallabies when they played them, which was one of lacking confidence and uh, knowing that they needed at, at minimum four tries themselves. So the respect issue is something that I think probably was was a factor there. But Portugal did a Fiji on Fiji. I thought I thought they were they were just incredible. They were they were a thoroughly enjoyable game, and if you think back to Ian Foster's slightly veiled dig um, at uh, maybe some of his uh, pending rivals, though certainly this week, well maybe not this week, but another team that may you uh, may come up against, and um, the game's got to at some stage the game's got to work out which um, the world's got to work out which uh, game they'd rather watch, and um, that was fascinating to see that story certainly right across ESPN, and uh, it is that real kind of clash of. I guess rugby beliefs and ethos around things like the seven to one split and you know um, continual aerial raids and box kicks against what we saw the other night and, and probably that New Zealand uh, win over over Italy uh, the ninety six point effort so some things to ponder there, gents. Um, all right, if, if we look ahead then to to the quarters, um, or actually let's go to Stade de France last Saturday night, Christy. You and I were both there. Um, Look, as much as I'd like to see Fiji topple England this weekend, um, no offence, Tom, um, I, it's hard not to be swept up in this Irish story right now. And um, the other night, it's, they reckoned fifty to 60,000 Irish. It kind of certainly felt that way. Um, Christy, when you and I made our way from um, near the Moulin Rouge on the on the metro, um, on the sweaty tight metro um, to the Stade there uh, on Saturday evening and just the colour in the stands and it's hard not, to, as I said, to get swept up in the momentum and the, the romance, I guess, if you like, of this story that everything's coming together for this team. Um, but the storylines this weekend are just so juicy, aren't they? Like you've got the team that knocked them out four years ago. There's the chance to equal the 18 test tier one consecutive victories. Um, there's something else I'm, I'm leaving out there. Ian Foster potentially, you know, hit coaching his last game. Um, the All Blacks just being the All Blacks and being able to win. Uh, sorry, Ireland having never progressed uh, past the quarterfinals is the other one I'm looking for. It's just mouthwatering this clash on Saturday night. And uh, if we go back to the weekend, the atmosphere is, is just extraordinary to be soaking that in post-match with the singing of uh, the Cranberry Zombie, Christy and Fields of Athen Rye. Um, it, was, it was special, even as an Australian who's got no Irish blood in him whatsoever. Um, it, it very nearly brought a tear to my eye. Yeah, and, and very rarely towards the end of a game or in the moments after a game can a journalist to sit back and appreciate it for what it is because you're usually scrambling to finish your match copy or to duck down to the presses. But not having a huge amount of skin in the game, you and I just kind of looked at each other and just thought, wow, you know, spine-tingling stuff. And and, and that near the moments, and, and I dare say everyone that was in there, just uh, I think it was about 80, tick under 80,000 that was there, uh, it was a, a game that you will remember, and I'm sure Scottish fans will remember, despite it, you know, blowing up to them. And it was really over by the half hour mark to the Scots. 
who attempted to play with wit but failed to go forward and make any inroads. Uh, Ireland just played the most emphatic game, the clinical game. The running lines, the work rate, the Mac Hansen sweeping around the back and then getting through and running off shoulders of Gary Ringrose. Uh, they were they were brilliant. And I thought it was pretty well officiated, the game too. Um, and you're right, like the, the storylines are incredible. Uh, the other one being, and I, I, you ratted off some stats there that were, were fantastic, but whether or not, you know, it's a year. 14 months since Ireland went down and beat New Zealand and, and the little lines of the Peter Romani's having the digs at Sam Kane and whether or not he did say it or didn't say it. But there's going to be so much in this and revenge has been a word that's been spoken about, but it's all on the line because if Ireland can can topple New Zealand, 18 matches, as you, uh, 18 straight matches uh, that they would have won, her first semi-final result, but it also would be kind of the cherry on top of what Ireland's rise has been over the last 10 years without progressing to a semi-final uh, at a minimum. They won't be remembered as this awesome side of a generation, which Gregor Townsend said in the post-match, uh, could dominate for the next five to 10 years. The amount of mental scarring that will happen if they can't get past New Zealand, I think will be through the roof and it would be it will leave a little bit of a question mark around David Nusifora and his ability to bring this Irish side uh, and take them to the top because they have everything going for them, even the guys that perhaps some thought might miss this match, like a Mac Hansen or a James Lowe, look like they'll be fit. So there can't be any excuses for Ireland. They're at the top of their game going forward into this one. And New Zealand, on the other hand, to this side that has just dominated since losing to, to France first up in the opening night. But to the, to the big victories over Italy, Uruguay, etc., does, does that prepare you for a quarterfinal? I'm not sure. Has the 10-15 the, the combination of Barrett and, and Richie Mwanga been tested? Has the front row being tested? I think there's still some areas where New Zealand could very much be challenged uh, and come up short this weekend but it sets it up so well doesn't it sure does uh tom you mentioned andy farrell earlier i, I mean clearly he's, he doesn't look like he's going to be returning to england anytime soon um whether that happens down the track he seems fully invested as you would expect him to be naturally in, in this irish program and and this amazing group of players that he's he's got right now um johnny sexton sexton sorry is the other one Really, uh, this is he's retiring after the, the tournament. Is that's that's announced? Oh, I didn't make that up. Um, look, uh, how do you see um, this game going this weekend, mate? You've watched a lot of Islands um, through the Six Nations and and Autumn Internationals uh, the past five ten years. Um, you've seen the development and the growth of this team. You've seen the Bundy Arkies and the Jamison Gibson Park and the Mac Hansons come in. Um, it just feels like they, I wrote the other night, they're a team that's in perfect harmony with each other, with the game plan and what they're trying to do. Everyone knows their role, where they need to be. Those two sweeping tries they scored um, first through James Lowe and then Hugo Keenan's first the other night as well. It's just rugby from another planet and it just so aligned with itself that um, you can't help not just enjoy what they do. And, and this is it. I mean... You give them a challenge and they accept it. So win a Grand Slam, done. Win a series in New Zealand, okay, let's do that. I mean, they just achieve things. And this is a group, 
And I think the thing above everything else, which is so remarkable, is they have Robbie Henshaw on the bench. He is an unbelievable centre. And I know he's he's now struggling with injury, but the team is so sort of comfortable that you have your you have Bundiaki, you have Ringrose, and then you have Henshaw on the bench. Sure, why not? Uh, other teams have tried and find a way to probably shoehorn him in somewhere else. No, no, we'll just have him off the bench. He's world-class. He would walk into probably any other team in the world. But no, we're happy with that. And it's they're so comfortable in their own skin. And they are they have this sort of this drive. And as you put it in your piece, there's a wave happening here. Like we're seeing a team who's just rumbling through and improving and it looks like they're having fun, which you just don't perhaps see with a few of the other teams in the knockouts. And like it's hard to see anything other than an Ireland win. But then you forget the fact they're playing the All Blacks. And then the All Blacks come with all manner of uh, so-called aura, et cetera, et cetera. We haven't yet really seen them stand up in this World Cup. I know they thrashed a couple of teams, but they, they were really poor in that game against France. Um, it's such an interesting game. It's going to be fascinating. I think Ireland will win. Um, and you're right. I think if they don't, then the mental scarring is just going to be unbearable. But we're seeing a team that's growing. Any challenge that's in their way, they swipe across. Like they just get out of the way. They kind of they run through it. And I think it's going to taste something absolutely monumental to stop this team from winning the World Cup. Christy? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think Ireland win this match. And and I just think that they've got an all-around game. They're, they're so balanced. Uh, they've got a great back row, hard-working back row. Uh, their their midfield, their running lines, continuity that they had uh, and they've displayed for so long is something that I think will trouble New Zealand to uh, have kind of mixed and matched at various stages throughout not just this campaign but over the last 18 months. The question mark I've got about Ireland at the moment still is the front row. I don't don't think that they quite have the front row that, that, uh, that France or South Africa have but nor does New Zealand because, and especially if the Tyrell Lomax is out uh, as expected with, with a medial injury, um, I, I just can't see New Zealand bullying the Irish pack that other sides will. But oh, I think it will be a great result, even though the South probably needs New Zealand to stand up. Super Rugby probably needs New Zealand to stand up. I, I, I just imagine that they're not going to get the quick ball that they thrive upon and I don't think that the last month would have done a huge amount for New Zealand just putting 50, 60, 80, 90 on respective sides. It's all it's all well and good to beat up an Italian side, but they've been rubbish throughout this campaign. And I think I think the decision to move Kieran Crowley on before, uh, you know, in the lead up to the World Cup, I can't imagine that would have helped Italy's chances. And I think that was on display, but. Tom, to, to your point about they look like they're having fun, it's pretty easy to be having fun when you win 17 straight, mate. So, um, I, you know, and, and that shows, but how they adjust to the, the panic, the pressure that comes in, it's a good thing that they've been tested, not just at the URC level in the finals matches, Munster, of course, winning, but Connacht and um, making a semi along with, with Leinster, but but the championship cut pressure and putting being put in these situations of knockout rugby over the last... 12 to, to 24 to 36 months would have been very, very crucial. Yeah, can't wait for that one. Uh, if we look across the other quarters, gents, uh, Wales-Argentina, um, tricky one to call. I, I think Wales are certainly playing with a, a bit more confidence and belief and continuity than Argentina have been, certainly before the 
game with the Brave Blossoms on Sunday. That was that was by far Argentina's best performance of um, the tournament to date. But you kind of feel that Wales have maybe just a little bit stronger. They've got some injury concerns, no doubt. But um, and the loss of uh, Tolupe Falatau Tom is massive for them because he was really coming back into some form, wasn't he? Um, but this has kind of got a, a very Warren Gatlin feel to it that he just will be able to shut Argentina down and shut them out of this game, I think. Yeah, I think it's going to be a Northern Hemisphere shutout this weekend. So Ooh. that's what I'm going for. Um, and so, yeah, I think it will be. Um, look, Wales, uh, they need to have Anscombe fit. They should have bigger um, fit after they kind of sort of managed his uh, pectoral injury. Uh, Liam Williams was an injury that, but he looks like he's going to be fit. But Falatau, he's he's world class and he's a he's at the centre of everything they do really really well um losing him's a massive blow but there's um they've got a few players who can try and step in um he can't replace them because it's not you just can't basically but whether they see Wayne Wright at eight or they shift things around it's gonna be interesting but I think they'll Argentina were good against Japan I think Wales will have too much for them um this weekend I was there, as you said, Brucey, and Argentina were impressive. They were impressive scoring first phase, uh, or it might have been second phase, through Tocobaras, who just burst through midfield. And that really just started them on their way. They finally got their attack going. And it was interesting. I spoke to Michael Checker afterwards and uh, fortunately managed to grab him, at, at being probably the only Aussie there that was there. And um, he spoke about the pressure that this Argentinian side had felt over the last month with the wave of Argentinian support. He thought that they were too tight, that they had been just too tight and it added to weigh them down a fair bit, actually. And, you know, with all the family and the friends coming across, hoping that they would get to that quarterfinal, now that they're actually there, it actually might just just allow them to get back and play I, I think that is probably a factor. Well, we've heard it. We've been in the, the stands of the Argentinians and they're wild, their support, and they have been certainly over the last month I was there for when they played Samoa and they were horrendous. Uh, but they've, they've built every game. I think they've got a little bit better and that's all you need to do in, in a pool stage as long as you make it to a, a final and particularly when you're taking on a Welsh side that's not someone like an Ireland, New Zealand, France or South Africa. You put yourself in a very much a, a position to to make it. The loss of Pablo Matera is a huge one, and and, and between him going out and Falatau, it's almost like it's cancelled each other out. Uh, but I think the Argentinians have the ability to put enough pressure on the ball. Uh, they're generally pretty good at the line out. They don't have a great scrum. Nor do I don't think Wales have a great scrum. Uh, it could come down to just simply who holds onto the ball. If Argentina can play with the same continuity that they did against Japan, they're a serious chance, I think. And probably uh, I wouldn't be underestimating them. And uh, what I love about it too is Gatlin Checker, third World Cup in a row. But as Czech pointed out to, to me, this is third. Uh, this is the first time a knockout footy. Previous two in a pool stage, one apiece to Czech and Gatlin, uh, this one is perhaps the most important. And I wouldn't rule out Czech and, and Australian rugby going forward. What his future is remains to be seen beyond this World Cup. Um, David Kidwell, his defence coach, said that he would like to stick in, in rugby as a, as a side note. Uh, there you go. Does, that, does that see him potentially join Australian rugby going forward? We'll, we'll see about that. But 
there's lots to play out here. But it's, it's such an exciting match. And all four of these quarterfinals, I think, are the most ex- exciting quarterfinal matchups perhaps in the history of this of the World Cup and the 10 editions. Whilst we've bemoaned the fact that all four are on one side of the draw, the top four, what it's now meant is that there's nothing between any of the nations in either side of the draw, which is one of the real blessings of the fact that it was a draw that was done three years ago. Maybe the only blessing, Christy. Um, gents, uh, what about Fiji? I was just thinking, the, you think the two, clearly the best performances of their pool phase were against Wales first up and then Australia, where they they really knew they had to get up for those games potentially. Um, they had to play in a slightly different um, fashion, certainly against Australia. That's what they did then perhaps they're, they're accustomed. Is there something that, says okay they've had these two kind of you know inglorious performances against Georgia where they scraped over the line and then clearly lost to Portugal at the death that playing against one of the big boys again uh, inverted commas uh, in England this weekend that they will they'll raise their game and they can you know rediscover some of that form Tom that they showed against uh, both Wales and Australia well yeah I think so I think we'll definitely see an improved Fiji this weekend they've also got the um that, that self-belief they had from beating England at Twickenham. Um, and I think we're going to see them pushing England really close. I think England will probably just about edge this one. I think they'll play very much in the style they did against Argentina, um, where they just try and shut everything down and then take the points and move on. But I think it's going to be fascinating. Um, Fiji, yeah, I think they got beaten at their own game against Portugal. Um, and against Georgia, I didn't see the match, but I've seen and like, heard and read enough about it that Again, they kind of just got sucked in. So I think this is going to be a really interesting week. I think we'll see Fiji um, definitely push England extremely close and I'm going to give them one almighty scare. And I mean, it would be great for the game if they reached the semi-final, wouldn't it? I mean, that would just be fantastic. Um, I don't think they will, unfortunately, but I think it's going to be fascinating nevertheless. Yeah, they haven't handled the... the uh, Sorry, they haven't handled the the tag of being favourites world or CG and, and that I think will help them. Questions for both of you. Owen Farrell, is the captain he'll play? Should he be playing? Should he be in the starting side? And should where should that leave Marcus Smith? Because how can you take three ten options into a, a match day twenty three? Um I think he will play. Uh I perhaps don't think he should at the moment. I think Ford's playing, uh, Ford's playing brilliantly. Um, Smith also is making such a great impact as fullback. Uh, I don't think the Ford-Farrell combination works. Um, we've seen it forty-two times now, and still you're never quite sure exactly how it clicks. Having said that, they saw no ball whatsoever against Samoa, so it perhaps wasn't the greatest um, chance to sort of judge judge them again under the Borthwick regime with with Sinfield and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but uh, he will start, so there's no doubts about that. Borthwick's already said it. he's the captain. They um, Borthwick absolutely adores him, so yeah, he'll be playing. I think he'll play, and I agree with Tom. I wouldn't be picking him. I, I've never been the biggest Owen Farrell fan, and a lot of that has to do with his defensive technique and the, the fact that he's got away with murder there for years. And that finally caught up with him a couple of months ago. Um, but yeah, I'd be playing George Ford, um, and Marcus Smith, as Tom said, has certainly looked good coming off the bench and, and adding a bit of spark, which is something England are, are short of, um, that they need, uh, attacking wise. So, um, yeah, he'll play, but I don't think he should, uh, Thomas, I think you've got to nip off mate to an appointment. So we'll 
So thank you very much to you. And Christy and I might touch briefly on France and the Springboks to wrap it up, mate. Uh, go well in Marseille this weekend and we'll look forward to reading all your copy through the week. Thanks, chaps. Chat soon. Cheers, Tom. All right. And Christy, if you and I then look to um, the weekend's final quarter, France and South Africa back at the stage, to France in Paris. Um, Springboks, it's hard to know quite where they're at. Um, obviously, a, a fairly dominant showing against Scotland first up, if potentially not on the scoreboard. They virtually shut the Scots out defensively, a bit like Ireland did in the first half on the weekend. Um, and then that really engaging, ferocious, physical contest with Ireland themselves um, two weeks later. Um, games against Tonga and Romania were, were probably little more than, than training runs. Um, do you see a Andre Pollard coming in and, and starting this week at, at 10 again as the goal kicking that much of an issue from Armani Libok in a massive knockout game like this that um, they simply can't overlook a, a guy with like Pollard who has this World Cup, this big game experience and is probably a little bit more uh, sure-footed from the kicking tee than Libok. Do I see it? I, look, we've got to acknowledge we're not we're not in the South African camp. We don't know how they're going. We don't know how they're tracking. I think it would be very difficult to come in at this late stage and then be asked to step up and, and take the side around. Uh, I, that was sort of the reason why I was really surprised that Pollard and Arm weren't in the initial 33. I just didn't think he needed to take four nines and yeah, one or two yeah. of them might be able to play out wide um, and, and perhaps Stats can you know, fill in at 10, but it, it's left them in a situation where I think that they have to play uh, LeBoc. And if, and if they don't, what does that do with the confidence? What does that do for Pollard to be trusting? And I know that he's stood up at various times throughout his career and kicked well and, he's, and he can strike the ball really well. But we've also seen him kick terribly. And what Pollard you would see if he was thrown in, I'm not sure. I don't think anyone knows. Uh and you know, that's a concern for South Africa. And that's the reason why I think that France are, uh, are favourites here is because of the, um, uh, they might not be considered the favourites by the bookies, considering South Africa are the reigning world champions, uh, champions and their forward pack and their World Cup winners within their team. But there's just been too much chopping and changing, I think. I don't think they've been allowed to have as Ben Darwin would, would talk about the cohesion come through by playing consecutively along inside each other. Um, and, and you compare that to France, and yes, there's been one or two injuries that they've had in recent weeks, and but they're a side that's so incredibly well balanced that I, I think that France edged them here. Uh, where, where do you see it? Would you, would you be bringing back Pollard at this point in time? It's a great question and one I pose to you. I'm glad you've thrown it back at me now. Um, I I think you probably have to. Um, I think the goal kicking, maybe not so much um, Libok's um, lack of success from the team, but the narrative that is now out there around it. It's hard for him not to go into this game thinking, I've got to kick every goal. I've got to kick every goal. I've got to kick every goal. It's become such a, a talking point for this team. They get asked about it. I think it probably every second press conference, um, Erasmus and, and Jacques and Inama have done their best to defend Marnie to this point. But um, it, it's too big a game, I, I think, to to say, to be hopeful that things are going to turn around when he's looked fairly inconsistent in the matches he's played. Would it, would it be a bit of a case where 
And I, I don't think it worked by moving Ben Donaldson to 10 against Wales. And that was in part because goal kicking issues, but also confidence issues. Uh, would it would it explode or like like it did for the Wallabies or because of Pollard's class and his ability you know, to, to be a general commander out there uh, and the fact that he's a World Cup winner, would that just mean that he has all of that to fall back on uh, and therefore he wouldn't struggle in the same way that perhaps Donaldson did? And I think the stability that he's got around him too, you know, he's played with, with Faf for so long. He's got Damien Dialonde there just being able to shovel that ball, ball off to him. At 12, Jesse Creel has been um, playing pretty well on the 13 jersey. Um, the wingers, we know what they can do. Maybe Chesie's been a little bit below his best, but they've got other options there. And um, and at fullback, uh, Willemser, who's been picked ahead of Willie, although that could go either way. So um, I think just that general stability otherwise around, if Hondro was to come back in, um, perhaps see, and he's vastly more experienced than, than Ben Donaldson is as well, if you, you make that comparison. So... Um, yeah, we'll, we'll watch that one. Uh, if we look at France, Antoine Dupont uh, officially cleared to return to um, physical activity, uh, full training yesterday by his surgeon. Um, I mean, it's drama personified really, isn't it? The way this has unfolded in a game that he probably need, didn't need to be playing or certainly didn't need to be playing after halftime there against Namibia. The way it happened in, in a high tackle that, you know, the guy, World Rugby saying trying so hard to get out of the game and it sees its number one star of the tournament uh, robbed of of two further pool games. He's back in time for the quarter. Um, geez, it's uh, you know it's it's he's got to be feeling it. I'm sure still. Um, I'm not sure whether he's going to be wearing this five millimeter padding or whatever that I think he's allowed under World Rugby regulations. But um, it's a shot of energy and just a real boost in confidence for France. You would think having their their little general, their petty. General back for this game. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And fair play to France. They've announced it immediately. They, they, you know, they haven't they haven't waited until they named the match squad to to make this announcement. They haven't tried to duck and weave perhaps like Eddie Jones did with Will Skelton. But it's a different circumstance once again. A bit probably a bit like the Donaldson comparison that I just threw up before. But um, he he's a master and a commander, and and he. Kicks off both feet, passes brilliantly, tackles ferociously, and he's a leader uh, who, who who holds the captaincy. So he's got a handy replacement, hasn't he? He's just stepped up, and the combination between him and, and Jamabert have been first class. So whichever way they go, I'm sure DuPont will probably come back to start. Uh, he'll need to get some some reps under his belt over the over the coming days, but it is a boost for. France by the mere fact that they can look to their general and knowing that he's alongside them. Final, before we wrap up, mate, are you with Tom? Will it be a northern sweep this weekend or or is there a southern wind somewhere across the fall, maybe two? I think I uh, touched upon it, maybe hinted on it, that I think Argentina can do a number in Wales. Uh, They're the ones that I think... uh, Let's be honest, New Zealand and, and, and... and South Africa are both great chances. You, you can't ride either of them off. No. Um, and I'm sure that there will be Southern Hemisphere representation. If there's not, well, spare a thought for everyone from the South because the North will be talking about it for four years and that's enough to do your head in. But um, 
Uh, yeah, I think there'll be one or two surprises. There has to be. There generally is. Uh, and, you know, if it is all for North's fair play, because they've, they've kind of dominated and they've looked and they've built and Wales have gone back, simplified their game and, and someone like Warren Gatlin has been able to bring British and Irish Lions teams together in, in 10 weeks and he's done the same really with Wales with what they've done since the Six Nations, which didn't go to plan. Maybe there was one or two changes. There certainly was from a personal perspective. But they've been very, very good over the last six weeks. It's going to be an amazing quarterfinals and weekends. And we're going to be in Paris now, uh, shifted from Marseille uh, as as a result of the Wallabies not not progressing through to the, to the knockout stage. But it, it's it's really going to engross and, and captivate the entire world because there's great world representation uh, with the Pacific Islands being represented by Fiji, which which is so great. Of course, South America and. Um, you and I were having a quick Guinness before the Irish-Scottish game, and there was Americans in there that had come across yeah. simply to Wyoming. watch it. Yeah, and it just goes to show that how how much of a world game this is. It's an exciting thing that you're seeing people travel uh, across the Atlantic to, to come, and and it's a and it's a good sign for the 20, ahead of the 2031 World Cup, which will be up. Uh, of course, in in the United States. So here we go. Bring it on. Bring it on. Indeed. I uh, can't wait. It's Tuesday morning here. We're recording this. We've got a few days just to let the anticipation expectation build. But yes, can't wait to get back on Saturday night because as I said earlier, the Irish uh, support right now is, is something extraordinary. And if you, you get offered a ticket this week in Paris, I'm not sure how many French listeners we've got to this or, or traveling punters who are over here, if you've, you've got an opportunity to go, do not turn it down. It is incredible. All right. Thanks, mate. Um, as ever, uh, we'll follow your work out there all through the week. Of course, we'll have all the build up on ESPN.com, uh, ESPN.co.uk. In up here for Tom's work and .com.au down in the south for anything Australia and New Zealand over the coming week. As ever, give us a shout out on social media, anything you want to discuss talk about um hypothesize moving forward and we'll uh, talk to you in seven days cheers